Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the May 8, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. We don't even have time to talk, mark the 50th anniversary of the May 8 in Paris. I'm moving on to its primary day in several states. If anyone's streaming KUCI from West Virginia, Indiana, North Carolina, or Ohio, today's your turn to vote. Scientists are running in these races. So, and speaking of scientists, today on the second segment, Kendra Walters and Samantha Lay, PhD candidates at UCI's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, who along with a sizable brain trust of UCI academics, are arranging the Climate Solution Summit. They're going to cover this special forum to be convened all day on May 30th, that's the end of this month, at the Beckman Center. Our first segment, returning to Ask a Leader, is Bill Jacobs, Irvine's principal planner, bringing updates our way on the city's general plan. And uh, we're going to peek under some hoods of some really fast-breaking updates, uh, judicial updates and uh, measures on our primary ballot. We've, we've got a lot to cover. The lines drawn, numbers chalked up in the general plan matter to anyone residing in, visiting, or doing business in our fair city of Irvine. We'll be right back with Bill Jacobs after a station break. Welcome back to Ask a Leader with my guest, Bill Jacobs, Principal Planner for the City of Irvine. We're going to pick up where we left off last November, I think it was the 7th, with the general plan, Irvine 2035, as this process continues. Bill Jacobs has 28 years of municipal planning experience, including the cities of Santa Barbara, Burbank and Victorville. His experience in both development review and long-range planning includes comprehensive mixed-use planning for downtown Burbank and various mixed-use developments in the downtown and waterfront areas of Santa Barbara. He has recently completed a mixed-use residential development strategy and implementation plan for the 2,700-acre Irvine Business Complex, which is rapidly transitioning from a traditional suburban and commercial industrial center to an urban mixed-use community. He's currently overseeing a comprehensive update of the city's general plan. The subject of the interview today, Bill has earned his Bachelor's of Science in City and Regional Planning at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and has been uh, seen the earliest practice experience of UC Irvine's urban planners. He joins me in studio. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Bill Jacobs. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, it's now half a year later since you first appeared on the show. Would you please offer, and I'm asking you to really, the, the, the lightning round, a brief recap of the general plan process, the scope being to offer a wide range of housing options. We'll start with that as a, that, that planning as a point. Sure. The general plan is the city's long-range blueprint for physical development. Uh, we first adopted it in 1973, and our last comprehensive overhaul was in 1999. And if you look through that, you'll see a lot of policies and everything oriented toward building 
out of the city. What's going to happen when things grow in the future? Well, we're almost there. We may have vacant land, but a number of uh, most of that has approvals on it. So we're maturing rapidly as a city. And this comprehensive update for the plan we're looking at is looking at how to deal with being a mature city. We're not focusing as much on growth outwards as maintaining quality of life. And one of the big themes we got out of this most recent round of outreach was keep Irvine, Irvine. We did our first survey back in 2017, and it was a kind of a scan of the community uh, in terms of demographics and um, ideally community values. And I talked about a little bit about those uh, last time in November yes. when we started our second survey. And that drills down a little bit more into those values that the community came up with. And it sets the stage for how we develop a framework of our general plan. So with, with respect to the outreach, uh, that's what I'm here to talk about today is uh, what came out of some of that outreach and where that's going to take us. Okay. Well, what did come out of the outreach? What did, and were you a surprise at all? Or, I mean, and I want to say it, it's important to take stock of the fact that there are so many public policy prerogatives opening up, developing from the nano-local to the regional to the state to the federal international levels. There's so much for the general public to keep track. It was a feat for you to get any kind of public commentary to, to watch this general plan update. Well, we were thrilled that out of all the surveys we submitted, we received uh, just under a thousand comments back. Okay. So that we were very happy with that because there were another, uh, there were other citywide surveys that were going on by non-city agencies um, at the same time. So we're glad that we got uh, that we got enough attention on ours that, that we could do this. Were there zip codes associated with each one so you knew there was some sort of distribution or they weren't all coming from uh, north of the five? No, they were fairly distributed equitably okay. throughout, throughout the city. That's, That's one of the want. things we, we pinned down was, the, uh, was those demographics. Because Ultimately, what you're going to see with the general plan is we're, we realize that the city is evolving into several specific neighborhoods. And you have the core of the city where there's always been primarily residential. Then there's the IBC. Then there's the spectrum area, which has really evolved over the years. And then you have the Great Park neighborhoods. So each of those kind of has its own theme to that. And we're refining as we go along. But the biggest emphasis, I think, is going to be in the core of the city where we have um, where where we have existing residential development and how we can maintain the quality of life in that area. Like Woodbridge, that kind of thing? Like Woodbridge, uh, Northwood, the ranch, the older neighborhoods. Okay. Everybody knows where those are. So yes. north of the north of the 405 all the way to, well, and north of the 5. Yes. I could say roughly generally the area between Culver and Jeffrey, even out to Sand Canyon, and then between um, Portola and down to university. That's roughly the core of the city. Well, the, the I, Turtle Rock, too. It goes further than that. And keeping Irvine, Irvine, is that meaning like sur suburban and not too dense? Thank you very much. But uh, and but did that include, like, I'd like to be able to at least walk to one commercial place. Does that mean, is that, did that show up? It did more so keep it the way it is, but we see that there's an interest in more commercial opportunities. When Irvine Company does the villages, they plan a commercial center in each one. You'll see that like on, in Woodbridge, there's two, one at each corner on Alton. And um, the other villages have a center in them also. But I know there's an interest in more neighborhood level services. And that yeah. may be evolving in the future, what we call accessory retail that could be provided at a very small level without having an impact on the neighborhood. 
So any changes that's going to be made would really be of such a limited nature. We are not planning any big intensity changes or part of this project. This is really keeping the general plan as it is, but facilitating whatever it will take to, to improve, to keep and improve neighborhood quality we're looking at issues right now such as these new accessory dwelling that's units what that the state yes. has mandated good, good point we have more boarding houses coming in that uh a lot of them we have code enforcement against so i'm, I'm going to be dramatic here we're going to say neighborhoods feel under siege when they have uh people that are uh renting out their homes for airbnb or to more students um, it, of course, creates parking impacts and noise impacts in the neighborhoods, uh, people that are running boarding houses. Um, and now we have the state sanctioning these accessory dwelling units we, um, that essentially... For infill. For, for infill development. And affordable housing stock. Exactly. And again, affordable housing is a relative term for how much you can rent it out. But but that's the idea. The state is really trying to address the housing crisis with that measure. Well, one thing that those boarding houses and... The uh, Airbnb and that kind of housing stock, it tends to undermine the community feel, which I imagine was one of those overarching sorts of themes that people, you can't banter with your your accessory unit. I'm sorry, you could your accessory unit with your with the Airbnb tenant or the boarding house and they're not there for very long you can't talk about what's on the ballot on the primary or or what's in the general plan update, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, that generally happens with uh, when you have uh, more of a transient nature of your neighborhood like that. When you have people that have, like in my neighborhood, we call them the originals. There's still a number of them that oh, yeah. have lived there since the beginning. And, you know, you can go and talk and talk with them. Others you don't see as often. It does affect the quality of the neighborhood. Look, I've been a renter for a long time. I was a renter for a long time before owning a home. I understand that. But this is the nature of Irvine. It was built on a traditional built on a traditional sur- suburban model, um, enhanced with the greater quality of life because it was done by a master developer. For those of you just tuned in, you're listening to Ask a Leader. My guest is Irvine Principal Planner Bill Jacobs on the City of Irvine General Plan updates, all of which are facts on a map that eventually become facts in the ground that affect all of us in this city. So we're, we're talking about the overarching themes and what people want with the general plan update, the survey that was done. You said 2017 was the last round. The first round the was first, in tw- first 2017. Then we the started second, the second round in late year. 2017. Okay, And of course... Can't emphasize enough uh, fixed traffic. That that's big. Well, yeah. and you know, I I interviewed on a well, I, I had an interview last week with the city, the mayor of Lake Forest, and he was talking about all of the the pressure, all the 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 peak, the spike in transportation and trips per. What was he said like eight trips per household? I thought that sounded kind of high there, but. So, and I, I walked him back and said, well, what was the planning commission doing about that before the, the, all the cars started generating more, the household generating more trips? So that's, that's on the planning commission to think that all the way through. That's right. The commission has to look at that. Solving the traffic issue, isn't, it, it isn't going to be solved by adding more lanes or anything like that. That's like widening a freeway. You're widening the belt and uh, people are going to... More dis- trips. That, that, 
that's going to just encourage more. The idea that we're focusing on that goes back to 2016 when we did our citywide traffic management study is operational changes. We can make improvements at intersections in terms of traffic flow, signal timing, um, any number of use of technologies, which was uh, strongly favored in, the gen- in, the, in our most recent survey, so we can improve operational flow. And that's where the changes in traffic management are going to be focused on. You won't see you won't see major improvements. You don't want Sand Canyon to be coming an eight lane road. It's already six. It's designed for what it's designed to be. That's that moves from an, an arterial to a super arterial to a freeway. You add more than that. <laughs> it it can the feel like that. Yes, it feel like that. Well, then, uh, so since we spoke, we've had a ginormous county wide discussion with where to offer a home to the homeless in Orange County, trending upward, more people needing affordable, not just affordable, just needing a shelter, period. And the judge that that put the um, onus on the county and all the cities to come up with a share of some kind of emergency structures to relocate those that were in tent cities in Santa Ana and Anaheim to some kind of safe housing of some kind. So that was a whole new piece that hadn't been a part of the general plan consideration before. That's right. It, it hadn't been considered before. I'll tell you, uh, six months ago, um, when we were doing the survey, the homeless issue was still out there. Our primary lead in working with homeless issues was with the Orange County Homeless Coalition. But now, just since, uh, I'm going to say, roughly since the beginning of this year, where the issue has really daylighted so much more, we do have to take a more proactive stance with this. And now it's at the point all cities, it's an issue that all cities need to address. I mean, Santa Ana raises valid concerns about what's going to happen with these people from the Civic Center, and likewise the people in Anaheim as well that were removed from the the riverbed. Uh, Right. So housing in in the general plan, when we first started this project, we weren't even going to touch the housing element because state law has a certain time frame planning period that cities work with with the general plans and we weren't due to revisit our housing element until 2021 and with regard to uh when the state allocates new housing requirements to every city so this general plan effort we're doing now is a keep irvine irvine but then when 2021 comes along we're going to have a large allocation of units from the state that every city gets this, and they have to show that their general plan can accommodate it. And that's what we see happening a few years in the future. We will see more, we will have to, by state law, find more places to put housing. And homeless is definitely, homeless accommodation is definitely going to play in that issue. It has to. It has to. I mean, even sooner than that, we we have to address it now. Right. Yeah. And that it's only trending upward. It's not a, a very bright picture with the housing stock affordability so um, and wages not necessarily going upward much so there's that's shrinking the housing budget for uh, uh, shrinking the budget with increased amount to, toward housing and that so it's the, the all the trends are in place that we need to like you said be very proactive absolutely so the dateline for the updates adoption what sorts of We'll talk a little bit about that. Well, we've got a new, another sort of item coming up on the primary ballot. So that's it's a big reconsideration of what's in the general plan. 
measure B. So I, when I looked at my sample ballot that arrived over the weekend, I noticed measure B's explanation was as arcane as it could be. There are, are indices, there are, there's legalese, there are resolutions, and there is a, an, buried in there is a, a split vote of the city uh, that approved Measure B. So a, a split vote, but it's sort of a little bit papered over to make it look like there was a, a little more of a, a unanimous decision. The city council approved. Not, I mean, and that's a very different message than a split vote. So I'd like to know what you as a principal planner can tell us to understand the major aspects, the impact of Measure B. Certainly. As you look through the ballot measure here, I mean, much of it is the, the language of an ordinance, which is essentially a city law. And I look through it and see everything here that talks about what's going to be done land use wise. And it to it many goes on people, for like it can eight look or like nine a, pages. Yes, and it looks like it's in a different language. But I've been in the business for a long time. Yes. I can speak this language and I can understand it. But it it isn't always easy. And it goes for the state ballot measures too, where it's tough to translate exactly what you're trying to get to. But what it comes down to is if you're going to vote yes on Measure B, that means that you would like to have the cemetery down at a new site that was, hadn't been considered originally. And this site is the strawberry fields that are at the freeway and uh, Bake Parkway. If you're voting no on Measure B, you're telling the city council you would rather have the cemetery back where it was originally designated in the general plan amendment that was approved for the Great Park Master Plan development within the last decade. With a fair amount of consideration. It wasn't a casual reflection. That was a lot of time resources put into that designation. Yeah, there was it was a long planning process that got to that point. But now um, the city... How much planning went into Measure B? Oh, I, I couldn't speak to how much planning went but into it. Wasn't but the, it wasn't the same. Well... Qu- quantitatively, was, and maybe qualitatively, therefore, wasn't that the same consideration? Well, I can tell you time frame was probably shorter. Okay. Just, uh, just the, when the opportunity came up within the past year, year and a half, I think. But um, the planning for the the Great Park and the Five Points development that went along with that, that was a several-year process. And the difference, too, what this, the original designation for the Veterans Cemetery was when the Great Park Board w- was many cities represented, correct? And this Measure B is only the consideration of the City of Irvine City Council. So there's like a, a whole... It's a lot smaller sort of a pipeline of contributions preparing Measure B versus the the previous designation at the Great Park. Yeah, so just acknowledging that that there's there were the board was composed of different interests at the time of right. um, the original approval, and now it is strictly the city's decision to make, and the city decided to put that before the voters. So, the, how much do, back to the drawing board would that create for you in the? general plan update well the general plan has always has different hands in it the update i'm working on is the larger citywide policy issues of keeping irvine irvine so we have a whole team that works specifically on the great but that's overall numbers of dwelling units right no you're right it's um still the nine thousand dwelling units that we're talking about and it's a matter of where those are going to go would you rather have them where they originally were planned or the city comes along and says look we think we have a better location and We'd like, we would like your opinion on that. If you say yes, we would move it. And 
traffic and environmental studies have been done that conclude that um, there's enough that can mitigate any impact from that development. So to, in many people's minds, it becomes a subjective, subjective decision of where do you want the cemetery to be? Okay. So let's, we, we haven't talked about the energy element. Do you want to say a few words about that? Because we're doing such a, or I'm not, no, not we, they on, on various, um, various schools here on campus that are really working on some leading edge propositions with dialing the, the greenhouse gas emission footprint down, not just the carbon, but the whole greenhouse gas emission. So what kind of energy element um, responses have you been getting in the surveys A and B? One and two, I should say, not to mix my numbers and letters. With respect to the energy element, we had not received too many comments on that particular issue. Not even from UCI? Well, I'd say we we did receive some, and um, I believe they indicated they were students, where we do see more of those kind of comments being made. But I will tell you, most of the comments came from longer-term Irvine residents that are focused more on keeping Irvine, Irvine. And that's a dichotomy we see when we have our public meetings about these. You have the younger, newer residents who are focused on more of the issues of greenhouse gas reduction, how we can better run the city more efficiently with respect to energy use, as opposed to the prior right. generation that is focused on Sprawl. I invested a lot. Well, the sprawl is the perception of sprawl control. I'm always hesitant to use the term sprawl well, because I we used are it a planned. Instead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it did last time too, but because <laughs> we are a planned community, it can be perceived as sprawl. But everything has been planned. But that plan does change, and that every time it changes, it goes through the public process and before the city council. But that is what we see: the older residents who feel their stake in the community is in how it was originally planned. So whenever there's a change or anything that looks like it might threaten that. That's a concern to residents, and that's why we're trying to get the point out there with our effort outside of the Veterans Cemetery, outside of the 100 acres, we are looking to how we can keep neighborhoods high quality and what people look for and what they're doing in Irvine. You said the 100 acres, and that's... Mm-hmm. That's your in. <laughs> and that is my in. Well, that was a designation. I believe it was a majority of the council approved in 2010 that 100-acre parcel to provide shelter for a homeless demographic that's one of the uses that we're allowed there it's called we have what's called institutional zoning for that property and that can be any number of uses any sort of government facility or warehousing um, educational use institutionally oriented uses so, but uh, shelter was specifically one of the uses Man, in you that really, list. You made that such a bureaucratic round there. That is so. Well, <laughs> I mean, but but and but, but I'm just saying it's it's one of the uses, and the county seized on that. And it's not only that, but it, it distinguishes Irvine from other cities that don't have anything approximating that. So that that matters. Yes, and that's where uh, it put some heat on, and uh, special interest decided to uh, mobilize and uh, push back from that designation uh, being the kind of uh, kind of a countywide sort of reception mm-hmm. of, of that demographic so exactly. but it's not a demographic these are people people that need to be safe it's a civilization that reflects on all of us oh absolutely and that's why we're saying this issue has so much come to the forefront now that we really have to we have to address it it becomes it becomes such a moral issue and a public health issue as well i mean as long as I, this is what happened with the the residents living in the red, riverbed, where the conditions were were horrible, 
and really can't really sh- can't have people living that way. So I think it's great that this issue is being daylighted as strongly as it is now. Exactly. Well, there we managed actually to fly through a lot of heady topics in a really short time. I don't feel like we've really slow down in any one of them and so I don't know if there's one piece to pick up so uh, is there maybe you can just give us a a a primer on what we do we've got the measure b is eight or nine pages in our sample ballot is there a way that the public can sort of raise their constituent game and appreciate uh, how how can they blow through all of that text and understand what they do to reflect what they want done in public policy? I'll tell you, my, when I look at measures, I will always look for objective sites that um, that are clearly not advocated by a particular position. But something like the League of Women Voters sites, where I know you're going to get a more objective um, analysis and brief of the issue. And it'll su- pretty a good summary of what the pros and the cons are much better than I think you get with um, in the sample ballot all the time. I mean, there you have the arguments. You do have a good summary, but I think when it's mixed in with everything else, it's it's hard to digest. I know a number of people when they get the sample ballots, their stomach just drops because it's it's a lot to read. So I say there's there's websites out there um, that again I always focus on the League of Women Voters site. That's that's a very good objective reference. Well, I and that's I the first step. You're mentioning that because it's that. That is a very helpful. Anybody else? There's there's the ballotpedia. I don't know if they're going to go down local enough on that, but actually, I think they'd have. So I haven't looked at it, but I, I saw that there was something about the local measures on there. Okay. Well, good. Well, Bill, um, you've got a standing invitation to return as things go. So let's let's wrap this up with what's the next deadline? And there's uh, the website gpu update 2035 at ci.irvine.ca.us i'll surely put that in the summary or can i interrupt you say it's easier there's also irvine2035.org okay that's so for people to say anything more or follow when the next so there'll go all the way back through the various commissions and then to the the city council yeah there's a bit can i take a minute to just please do okay We've done several years worth of outreach now, and we have a pretty good idea of the message that the community has given us. And now we are presenting the, that information to the commissions and council in June. So we're going to send out an email blast and let people know when these meetings are so they can see how what's being presented. We'll post all the detailed survey results. Then when that's done, we're going to kind of fall back and take the direction we get from the commissions and the council and develop that into what's essentially a draft plan. And that'll probably be out by the beginning of next year. And with that, that will have much more detail about goals and policies and what essentially the city can use moving forward. And with that draft, and after it uh, gets a rough buy-off, then we have what's defined as our project. We start our environmental review, and we get it ready to be adopted. And so you're looking at a process that will take you through probably end of 2020. Oh, well, that'll, and nothing will be happening during 2020. So, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, we've no. got nothing uh, but the city of Irvine to be concerned about. So. But it's it it behooves all of us to be participating. But we can we're getting spread pretty thin with so many public policy issues that are that are literally blowing up. And so it's it's we can count on professionals like you, Bill Jacobs, to make sure uh, there's integrity in the oversight of what's going in the ground and. So, how, what's the latest you've ever had to stay for 
a city council or a planning commission meeting, just so people get know how how athletic it is to be a city planner. <laughs> My latest was three in the morning. Three in the morning. Okay, folks. So, man, there should be a pledge drive just to support people with their, their provisions. Get an Irvine tote bag for that. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, that's all the time we have. Thank you, Bill, for taking the time joining me in studio today on Ask a Leader. My pleasure. My guest was Bill Jacobs, Principal Planner in the City of Irvine General Plan Updates. We'll be right back after a station break with my guest Kendra Walters and Samantha Lee, PhD candidates at UCI's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. We're arranging the Climate Solutions Summit. They'll cover this uh, the special form to be convened all day on May 30th at the Beckman Center. We'll be right back after a station break. Thank you for tuning. That was Brenda Navarrete. She's a Cuban performer, and that track was called Taita Bilongo. Thank you for joining us back to the show. My guests today for this segment are Samantha Lay and Kendra Walters. A little bit about both of them. Samantha hails from Bel Air, Maryland, a suburb of Baltimore, and she earned her Bachelor's of Science in Marine and Environmental Science from Coastal Carolina University. She is a fourth-year Ph.D. candidate in Professor Donovan German's lab, where she her research focuses on marine organisms. It's so cool this stuff. Specifically, sharks acquired their energy from diverse diets. They're omnivores, folks, and how the environment can impact their digestive strategies. And I'm thinking how their digestive strategies might, in fact, in fact, uh, impact their micro environment. This work has received funding and recognition from organizations such as National Geographic, the National Science Foundation, and more. In addition to her research, Samantha is very opportunistic in communicating science in the most amazing places in our backyard as well as nationally and internationally. She's appeared on the PBS kids television show Thy Girls as a science mentor, is a science writer for the lowdown on science, making Sandra Singh Lowe sound better than ever, and contributes to many other media. My other guest in this segment is Kendra Walters. She is a second-year Ph. student in Jennifer Martini's lab in ecology and evolutionary biology at UCI. She was raised in Roseburg, Oregon, down there south, southern Oregon, and earned her bachelor's degree in biology and geology from the University of Oregon. Kendra is now researching the diversity of soil bacteria in California grasslands and how bacteria move or disperse look over your shoulders, through a landscape. Through her research, she aims to connect microorganisms to issues of environmental health in Southern California. And they're both here to talk about their preparing this wonderful forum called the Climate Solutions Summit to be convened on May 30th at the Beckman Center. And we'll talk about that in great detail. But first, welcome, ladies, to Ask a Leader. 
Thank you. Well, thank you. So before uh, for the first several rounds, so everybody gets to know whose voice is whose. I just want you to say this is Kendra, this is Samantha. So before we get into the program, you're ranging. I'd like to learn about your research that each of you is undertaking at the Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. Samantha, shark diets tell us about their anatomy as well as the I want to call it the benthic community. I learned that stuff in coastal zone management. The the water column and how the water column needs to be managed. So tell us about a little bit about that because you've been so good at at really all that work that you've done and you've boiled it down to like the most amazing scintillating accessible productions. Sure. So I study ocean uh, ecosystem dynamics and mainly how top predators like sharks contribute to maintaining the biodiversity of those ecosystems. So sharks are obviously found in oceans worldwide. And I specifically study the bonnethead shark, which is a member of the hammerhead family. And they're acting a little differently than most sharks. They are eating a large amount of seagrass material in their diet, making us think that they are acting more like omnivores. So I'm trying to figure out the role that they play in critical seagrass meadow ecosystems that they inhabit. So, and, and, and the, that grass is so important. It's like, it's a nursery, it's a uh, grocery, it's a supermarket, it's, it's everything in there. And it's also a climate uh, greenhouse gas sequestering. I mean, it's, it's doing, it's a powerhouse. It's a utility facility. Absolutely. So all of that. But, but the fact that the, the sharks are nibbling away at some of that, is, that's not so much a, of an impact on the, the grass itself. It's just what the... So how does that, it's, it's, just reassure us how that doesn't pose an issue. Sure. That so, diversity of a diet. Yeah, sure. So seagrass meadows are really important. They provide oxygen that we need to breathe. They are taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. And the fact that these sharks are eating it is not necessarily detrimental to the grass itself. We just don't understand the role that they're playing in it. Um, so they could be acting as nutrient vectors, transporting nutrients across different seagrass meadows, and we're not sure how exactly that's working. So that's part of what I'm working on now. Okay. And so there, there's different nutrients uh, digesting the vegetation versus the, the critters, too. Yes. And that's, that's important. Definitely. Okay. And so how do you assert that this work uh, has a, an impacts on climate mo change modeling. Yeah, so as climate change is affecting the ecosystems that these sharks are living in, mainly the seagrass meadows, um, it's going to be important to understand how the sharks, as ecosystems are changing, are also changing with that ecosystem right along with it. So seagrass meadows are currently declining due to climate change. So that could have a big impact on the sharks, which could therefore have kind of a cascading effect on the rest of the ecosystem. Sort of, I guess, downward. Yes. That's usually the other way around, <laughs> right? Okay. Well, that's that's the shortest stroke I know um, that I, I couldn't get away. With, I'm not getting away with that. I, I, I'm duly noting that that's... Um, Reducing all of, I, I mean, you're a four-year student now, so you've been working on this a good deal of time, and you did a wonderful job of distilling for us. So, Kendra, tell us about how do bacteria and other organisms affect environmental health, what, what you're studying and how they affect that. So I'm studying bacteria that decompose fallen leaves. And so we know that year after year, leaves fall to the ground, right, and they, they begin to decompose. And we know that bacteria and fungi are the main agents that decompose those leaves. But what we don't know is how they get to the leaf in the first place. 
So in other words, are they coming through rainwater? Do they come through winds? Or maybe are they just hopping from soil particle to soil particle? How Or on leaf earth? to leaf. How can you track that? Uh, well, it's a little challenging, but what I've done is establish a field experiment in a local grassland where I'm putting out these sterile glass slides um, so they don't have any bacteria on them and there's no food for the bacteria to eat. So essentially what I'm doing is just collecting the bacteria that are landing on those and I have different treatments, so I'm excluding certain transportation routes, so let's say excluding all air transportation. Oh. Um, and then I count the number of bacteria that land on those glass slides and I sequence their DNA to understand what species are there. So I can kind of get an idea of what the community looks like. So there's, it's genetics. I mean, it's all genetics. Yeah, genetics is how we characterize the bacterial community. Oh, it's phenomenal. Yeah. And what, what areas, where, where are your parcels? Not, uh, we're not going to go over there and raid them. But <laughs> no, but where are you setting these up? Yeah, well, we have a field site over, it's called Loma Ridge. It's at the base of the Cleveland National Forest in Santiago Mountain. Um, it's a California grassland. Yeah. So and so that was a place that wouldn't I think environmental say a lesser disturbed area for you to follow that up there. Um, yeah, up. it's well, it does have a quite a number of invasive species, and it's next to an urban area, so it's not a it pristine environment. But we are sort of tracking how the environment. There's a lot of research that happens there, and it, it really involves a tracking how like climate is impacting um, this local ecosystem well how what what can you tell us and how it does impact the how, how the climate change well yeah Next we have then. a couple of plots uh, a couple different treatments we track drought treatment on both the plant communities and the bacterial and fungal communities we also look at nitrogen addition because we know with intensive agriculture right. a lot of ecosystems are receiving a ton of nitrogen and we see that they are definitely selecting for different, um, both plant species and also bacterial species. And those bacteria that we're looking at, they're decomposers, right? And so they're really key organisms for a healthy ecosystem because they recycle nutrients, making more nutrients available to let new plants grow that will ultimately support um, plant and animal diversity. So when we see changes in the, the species of bacteria with these different treatments, so like drought might change the species that are there. It's also changing what they're doing, which can impact um, the rest of the ecosystem. So that they're, um, I don't want to say they're evolving, but they're sort of, there's protective kinds of adaptations when there's less and less moisture. And so you can see that in a couple of generations of bacteria. And when we're talking like up to four or five year drought, yeah, absolutely. Bacteria generations times are incredibly short. Um, but one of the things we see is, is just a simple reduction in activity. Bacteria don't do a lot when there isn't Like rain. not reproduce even. Yeah, they I mean, don't like, divide. They're not metabolizing. They're sort of just hunkering down and waiting for better conditions. Intensive care unit. They're kind of, yeah. they're on a, a <laughs> lifeline, but bare. No, oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Well, there, I know you have so much to say about your research and we want to, we want to transition in how you get from these projects that you're doing that are, that are massive undertakings and you never know when you're going to get to your, uh, 
some kind of a breakthrough, some kind of explanation, some revelation, how things are working. So you're, but you decided you got it's not enough, and you want to send get this message out there, give other researchers a chance to bring out their messages. So you've involved a list of quite the brain trust: Kev Abizajian, Steve Allison, Lee Bardwell, Celia Fiaula. I'm, I'm not sure I, I met her. Um, Valerie Olson, Jim Randerson, Kathleen Traceder to present a really ambitious program on May 30th. It's all day long. So starting with, uh, we can talk about the UCI Newkirk Center for Science granted the seed money f- uh, to Steve Allison and Valley Olson. So uh, tell us a little bit about how that is. that was a jump on how to put this program together. It's so ambitious. Kind of the main goal of the Climate Summit is to not only involve the researchers here at UCI, but to get them to start partnering and communicating more effectively with members of the community. So not only are UCI researchers going to be involved, but we'll be inviting a lot of different stakeholders, policymakers, students, community leaders, um, pretty much any Southern Californian that's interested in um, some of the issues of the summit to come and talk together, collaborate, and try to identify the most uh, pressing climate-related issues that we need to start tackling here. And in preparation, we, I, I mentioned I was going to bring up that I was at the California Republican Convention last weekend in San Diego, and I noticed barely any lip service given to climate change. And so I thought, why not you get out your sample ballots and see who's running for office. Invite all of them. I'm thinking it's like, like there's a partisan skewing here. Inviting those Republicans who think that climate change is not a policy that needs their attention to make vivid and that this from all of this amazing research that you're doing and bring them in on this because this it's not working having a, a literate track and an illiterate track in our in our you know in the stakeholders so i don't know if that's something you were contemplating like dialing it up a bit but it it was not it was very disconcerting to see how disinterested disengaged those republicans congregating in san diego were about climate so we have been inviting pretty much everyone that we can think of, um, all local politicians, regardless of uh, political party that they affiliate with. Um, Because the issues that we're going to be talking about at the summit, um, our list of topics include oceans, water, energy, land management, things that affect all Californians. Um, So these are things that we think that all political parties, everyone who lives in Southern California has an invested interest in. So we want to try to find solutions to problems affecting these different topics that work for everyone. Yeah, and one of our main goals is to help facilitate connections and to form new partnerships. And so we'd love it if people who maybe didn't normally have a chance to interact would get a chance to talk about issues that matter to both of them. So do you see your role, though? I mean, inviting is is a step but there i i know that from just arranging to have guests some some guests aren't all that willing to to be on a live microphone and then they're running for office or sometimes colleagues of yours are a little concerned that they might make one little error and they don't want to be on a live mic either but but so i know it takes some doing to pull in these people and make sure they're participating so are you invigorating your efforts to make sure there's a really broad partisan representation at 
the summit on May 30th at the Beckman Center? Absolutely. That's our goal. Um, we are mainly having this session or having the summit be consisting of these breakout sessions. Okay. So it's oh, yes. It's so big. Yeah. It's, it's so, it'll so be, ambitious. It'll be mostly discussion based. So the the limelight won't be on any one person in particular, except for the two keynotes that we have, one at the beginning and one at the end of the day. You want to give us um, a little gives us the scoop on the keynotes. Sure. So the one in the morning will be Dr. James Randerson from uh, here right at UCI. And then the one... He's the the fires guy, right? Yes. Okay. Wildfires. Yes. And then in the afternoon, we have Anaheim Councilwoman Chris Murray, who will be delivering the afternoon keynote. That's excellent. She's she's a veteran in municipal government, and she's open. She's very tapped into what applied innovations, what they're doing over there at the Cove and all that. So she's... She has leadership in her coursing through her system. So that's what it's all about. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guests are Samantha Lee and Kendra Walters, Ph.D. candidates at UCI's Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, who, along with a huge brain trust at UCI Academics, they're arranging the Climate Solutions Summit to be convened all day on May 30th at the Beckman Center So the charter for the meeting, you've bitten off a big one. You're going to cover oceans, water, energy, land management, education, technology, health, economy, community, infrastructure. I was a little bit, when I registered, I thought, oh, gosh, where do I? I only get to check off two, you know. So, (laughs) But uh, I'd like to know, you've already told us about your target audience. What is it that you want to make sure they take away and what their follow through i mean in your wildest dreams let's just let's put it out there uh well we have a this is kendra yes uh we have a couple main goals for the the summit um the main goal is to really facilitate these discussions among a wide diversity of people so in doing so we're hoping to identify socially meaningful research priorities to identify important problems and solutions and to improve public communications and I think if we came out of the, the summit um, with more people talking and communicating, you know, having a diverse, inclusive, and impactful set of partnerships, um, that would be, that's how we would view success. Okay. So are, are you getting, so who's keeping track of the respondents right now? Are you, are, can you just check over the guest list and see who's coming in? Or is there, are they coming in? Or are you able to watch that? We do have a list of people who have already registered for the summit. I'm not sure exactly how many we have at this point. We're aiming for about 240 or so attendees. Um, So we're hoping to reach that goal. And the deadline for registration, although I'm sure somebody came and because they they just missed missed the beat there. The registration deadline is May 21st so that you can plan for for all the things that you need to have there. Because I think you're probably throwing in a little bit of a lunch there and where to put everybody. And and there's some are there exhibits in the in the, the lobby area outside of the lecture hall? So at the end of the day, um, at the end of the summit, there will be a networking poster session. So people are Good. going to be able to, students or members of the community can bring a poster detailing the type of work that they're working on related to these um, topics of the summit. Um, and we're hoping that that gives people another chance to communicate, to network, to really talk about the issues that are facing California right now and the solutions that people are trying to bring. Well, you know what I'll do is I'm, I I will be there, and I, I'm going to look for the people that might have been at the convention. I mean, or people that were sort of in between the convention and regularly attending 
the science forums that are so abundantly presented here on the UCI campus. And I, I'm going to buttonhole anybody I see in there. I mean, Chris, Christy Murphy will be doing that, too, the Anaheim City Council member. And she thinks she'll turn out. So she's looking for sort of new, bigger, bigger leadership opportunities. So um, one to watch and contribute. So I wanted just to detail where all your illustrious support is coming. We mentioned the Newkirk Center for Science. There's also the UCI School of Biosciences, the National Science Foundation's their Ridge to Reef, it's a, uh, they're underwriting it. It's their, and I'm quoting their charter, meeting a national need for science-based environmental management in urban complexes like Southern California, where large human populations interact with valuable natural resources. It's a really, really good fit for yeah. your form. Yeah, it is. Huh. So now the science policy group, are, are they uh, figuring into this? And other schools, because I, I can see who's funding this and see where the academics are coming from that are presenting and all that. But uh, are, what kind of student groups are coming? Yeah, so we've invited a lot of different groups on campus. Um, the Science Policy Group definitely being one of them. Also, Climatepedia um, will oh, be yeah. in attendance. We've invited a lot of people in it. You know, I think we're still waiting to hear responses, but a lot of envi uh, groups on campus like Global Partners for Sustainability or Engineers Without Borders, um, anyone who might have some interest in, in what we're talking about on May 30th. Well, excellent. I'm looking forward to that because that it's it's a pretty good venue for this kind of a thing. There have been some comparable ones that I, it's worked out really well. So that's it's a marvel. Well, I, I'm afraid we've run out of time. The, your enterprises, ladies, are staggering the mind. Thank you, Kendra and Samantha, for setting aside value time that you use for saving the planet for the show today. <laughs> <laughs> My guests were Kendra Walters and Samantha Lee, and they are Ph.D. candidates at UCI's Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, who along with a huge brain trust, as I said earlier, uh, UCI academics are presenting the climate Solutions Summit to be held on May 30th at the Beckman Center. The deadline is May 21st. All day long that this will be convened from 7.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the Beckman Center for the National Academy of Sciences. Thank you, ladies, for being on the show today. Thank you, well, thank you for having us. Well, that was a bit of a wrap. Next week, I'm going to have on the California 74th State Assembly seat Democratic candidate Kati Petri Norris still reaching out to incumbent representative Matthew Harper as well as to Democratic candidate Brian Ta in the interest of time I'm not reaching out to the other California Assembly District candidates as they've been interviewed in previous political seasons on Escalator. My second guest will be 45th Congressional District Democratic candidate Brian Ford. One more plug for voters in West Virginia, Indiana, North Carolina, or Ohio. I want to make sure every anybody who happens to be streaming from over there, who knows, you never know when you're on the web streaming, be sure to, to vote today and bring five friends with you to your polling place. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Oh,